Welcome to the Learning Development Projects podcast. The goal of this show is to foster conversations around learning development as a field of academic practice. To this end, we talk to people who have published in this area and contributed to making LD what it is. Every episode is filled with ideas that inform our practice and make our work with learners meaningful. We are your hosts, Alicia Siska and Karina Buckley. And today we're very pleased to welcome Helen Bostead. Helen is lecturer in English for academic purposes at the University of Plymouth, and she leads the English Language Centre. She was part of the learning development team that launched the successful writing cafe at Plymouth, and she's done a lot of work around opening up all the potential that higher education offers to those who do not speak English as a first language. She's also studying part-time for a PhD in education, drawing on ideas and methodologies which appear to be as transgressive and expansive as the paper we'll be discussing today. That paper is Coming to Writing, published in the Journal of Learning Development in Higher Education in 2011. In this, Helen explores writing as a method of inquiry, but in conjunction with transgressive data to examine the discourse of academic writing from a personal, subjective and narrative perspective. So thank you very much, Helen, for joining us today. Really looking forward to it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes. Um, Before we start, is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself, what you do or what you have done that shaped your thinking and your writing? Um, Well, I'll just say that it's been wonderful actually to go back to that piece um, and and remind myself of it. Um, It's been a long time since I've read it and and, and to kind of go back really in time to that, that moment when, you know, I've just felt so compelled to write about uh, what I was experiencing, but what I could see was happening uh, within higher education. So uh, yeah, it's been a great opportunity to kind of, um, yeah, just remind myself of of what was behind that piece, but also what's really interesting for me as I come to the end of my PhD journey is how many of those themes are still very much at the forefront of of, of what I'm doing now and the way I've taken forward those same, uh, you know, thorny issues that bothered me then uh, into my PhD. So yeah, it's been been a a very interesting day for me. Thank you. I'm glad you said it because actually, you know what, there are very few authors I, come back to there's maybe I don't know a George Lipsitz I love reading I will go back to maybe David Foster Wallace I will come back to but there are no articles I will read twice unless I have to and I have read your article three times already uh, and I was as I was reading it again this morning I was thinking that every time I read it I find something else in it and depending on when I read it, because last time was maybe a couple of years ago, and then previously was even uh, further back, I just interact with it differently. There's just so much richness in it and so much depth that uh, it's it's almost like you could write a book on this topic and you still would not exhaust all the ideas. No, you know, I do take that as a massive compliment because I think again something that really drives me in my writing is that that desire that it will engage the reader that it it will do something to the reader in the reading and whether that's different 
you know, in, in whenever you come to the text, but even if it happened only once, just that that move, you know, that generating some kind of movement or shift um, through the writing is really, really important to me. And even more so now, I think, with my PhD writings. Um, I think back then I was just, um, it was very unconscious what I was doing, but very, um, you know, if, if I felt very strongly about what I was doing, but it wasn't constructed uh, perhaps as much as I might think about the way I write now and kind of theorize perhaps what I'm doing more than I did then. It was, I think what struck me today, and I hope this does, you know, comes across in the right way, but the authenticity of it, that I could still hear myself in that piece um, and, and what I was feeling and, and, you know, and all the kind of tensions that, that, that came out through it. So I think that that's interesting mm. to me that it, 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 it moved me actually, which is kind of a bit odd to say, but um, I felt quite emotional reading it. Mm. I think what I like about it is it feels raw, not in the sense that it, it needed editing, but in the sense that it's your immediate response to what is happening right now. You're documenting your writing journey in a way. Um, and it's all coming out on the page so that as the reader, we're right there with you experiencing your experience of writing the paper, which I haven't come across anywhere else, actually. Um, and I read it uh, this week for the first time in quite a few years and I was struck like Alicia that it wasn't the paper that I remembered I think I've grown up since then actually <laughs> <laughs> and um, I I am um, yeah I was fascinated by it by your whole writing process actually yeah. uh, and all the different layers of what it it says about writing and who we are as writers uh, I, there was a lot about I, I suppose I've been reading a lot about identity recently and and you present writing here I think as a mediator of identity um, writing is situated and social identity is situated and social so do you see writing as a way of making and remaking ourselves in that way oh that's a tricky one um, I suppose I'm going to get myself very tied up here because I think where where I'm moving towards or have moved towards in the PhD is, is away from this idea of uh, author and, and, and kind of writer as a kind of um, discrete kind of contained individual identity. Um, I've always been interested in the idea of that, you know, that we all inhabit multiple identities, but I think, you know, with the kind of work I've been doing more recently, which sort of started with the post-humanist kind of perspectives mm -hmm. and has kind of moved I guess into um, that kind of decentering of the humanist subject and, and how to take the I, the individual, out of writing more, sort of pushing me more out of the way and letting the writing um, be the movement, be the kind of the generator of of, of thinking if that makes sense it's very difficult because obviously I am the writer but there's that sense in which that's not really important it's the writing and, and what the movements and affects that the writing produces that is of much more interest to me than than what it does in terms of my identity or, or mm -hmm. how I'm constructed through it if that is an answer to that question mm -hmm. so I've become very 
interested in the writing process, uh, not in terms of what it produces, but actually what it does to engage in writing practices that are not about the product, but are about generating, you know, this kind of movement and, and then kind of the, the writing almost taking on a life of its own, um, you know, it, it's very interesting to me. And I think after reading your piece this morning about, um, you know, liberatory writing practices, I think it's really unleashing that freedom to, 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 to let writing free of itself and of me as, a, as, a, as, a, as an author is, is really, um, seems to have a lot of power and potential in it. That's also very Zen, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Idea of, of freeing ourselves of our, of the self and, you know, not being bound by the self, but, but seeing and experiencing things as they are, as they come, as they arise, rather than constructing that kind of strong identity and, and writing that identity into everything that is happening. Yeah, I think that, I think that kind of sort of resonates with, I think, you know, Elizabeth Sampierre and her sort of ontology of imminence and that kind of, those sort of imminent writing practices. Ken Gale talks about a lot as well. And Jonathan mm -hmm. Wyatt, they've done quite a lot around, you know, that kind of, um, yeah, that absolute nowness mm -hmm. of, of, of writing and writing becoming in the moment, but in conjunction with, you know, everything else that's, that's you know, that's around us um, as we write. So, Again, I think Jane Bennett again talks a lot about these kind of interactions between, you know, yourself, the keyboard, your cup of tea, all of those things are, you know, part of the writing. And I think kind of moving away from this idea of this scholarly or, you know, writerly individual could be very helpful in terms of thinking differently about writing and what it what it does. Wow, that's uh, very profound. Because <laughs> uh, you have to abandon yourself, yeah, and you have to kind of um, give space to things and kind of give rise to impermanence as well of, of yourself as a writer. But there's tension in there because writing is permanent, then <laughs> it becomes a an artifact and we need to deal with it. And, and as we were talking about, about it before, we deal with it differently at different stages of our lives, different contexts, etc. So, uh, so what happens then when writing is released into the world? Does it become its own thing? Um, it always has done, hasn't it? You know, even listening to you two right at the beginning and your responses to going back and reading that piece and how you said you you know, you, you read it differently or it did different things or, you know, it wasn't the paper you remembered, you know, that whenever we unleash our writing into the world, it's gone. It goes and does what it does. Um, mm. And I, I will never always, you know, or, you know, you don't really get to know those impacts or, mm. or, or, or what it does or what it does this time and not another time. So, I, I don't mind that at all. I think that's exciting. Um, mm. But I think we still hold on to this idea of author and writer. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe there's a letting go of that that, 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 that is important. Yeah. There, there, there was one word that uh, was new to me 
<laughs> new article and which I now really love. <laughs> uh, it was Dijes uh, as a you know to rupture to break open, and I've never known it because it's linked with the world of plants and nature. And uh, but uh, it, it's uh, it's interesting to link with what we were talking about because. It is a little bit explosive. It is a, a little bit violent. That kind of rupture uh, and uh, and spreading across the world. So, uh, so I, I I must thank you for, uh, for that because <laughs> it's really. I feel kind like of... I don't recognize that word, Alicia. What is? <laughs> write it. Because uh, D E H I S C E. It's actually it was in a quote, um, maybe from. So um, it's on page 11, uh, St. Pierre talks on the, of the importance of response to oh, sprawling tendrils have the power mm. to creep into and dehiss the state oh, yes. of every research project. It's really beautifully. Mm. <laughs> yes. Wow. That's why I didn't recognize it because it's St. Pierre and her, yeah. her beautiful yeah. way of kind of just undoing everything with yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, just a few words. Um, yeah, I think, you know, she has been very, um, she's had a powerful influence, particularly on my early work, I think, but she's still, you know, a very committed educator, but also somebody who's always undoing, um, you know, what we consider to be knowledge practices and, you know, um, how we produce knowledge and what we think of as knowledge. So I think she's been a great mm. um, kind of instigator of, of freeing yourself up from things you think you have to do. I think one of the most uh, exciting papers I read was when, you know, when she was talking about um, un, uh, plugging into Deleuze and kind of, you know, not having to understand, mm. but you could just plug in. You can just, I don't even like the word plug in, but I kind of just, it was like somebody saying, don't worry, you don't have to understand everything to be able to kind of, open yourself up to writing and, and respond to to things that you've read you know we worry so much about have we understood it what does it mean have I got it right that that kind of stops you from writing whereas sometimes you read something and if you allow yourself to just kind of resonate with it you you can write without having to explain what it means if that makes sense I think there's so much energy put into you know I'm not, I, I'm, you know, not to say we shouldn't read closely and carefully, but that sometimes, you know, with difficult writers like Deleuze, you know, just letting some of his concepts work on you and your writing is much more productive than trying to understand what on earth he's talking about. <laughs> some postmodern and post-structuralist writers, we don't have a choice. <laughs> no, exactly. But, you know, being, being freed... To, to not worry about that was was for me very liberating that she you know Elizabeth St. Pierre was admitting she didn't understand everything that she read but she could still use that um, in a productive way to write and I think that, that I found very liberatory. It's almost like academic writing or what we think of as academic writing is very formalized and it's very contained and very structured but it's also very safe because you have to follow those rules so there's no risk involved but I think what you're arguing in this paper very effectively is we should take more risks um, that uh, we should explode things or dehiss them I like that as well <laughs> I've got to use that um, 
we should actually be allowing these ideas to creep in and have some sort of effect on what we do, even if we we can't necessarily structure it in that very close way. Don't know. Where yeah, could no, we... absolutely. I think that there's two things that cross my mind as you're speaking, and I think it goes back to perhaps a comment I made at the beginning where, you know, just when you're in a space such as the ones we occupy as learning developers or EAP uh, lecturers, um, often there's a tendency to, 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 to very much try and follow the rules of the game, um, to, to prove your credibility, to, to get published perhaps in, a, in a, you know, a journal that isn't the Journal of Learning Development in Higher Education. Um, which I have to say, I think is one of the best anyway. So, you know, and ne never underestimate the value of that journal. Um, but, you know, I think I see in EAP that people write extremely dense academic texts uh, that nobody can read. They're completely impenetrable. Uh, and I think it's partly born out of that insecurity of our field, of our, you know, of, of where we find ourselves positioned. Um, and I think what, again, I will always, always be so grateful to the Journal of uh, Learning Development and Higher Education for publishing this piece is they stood behind me um, and said, this is not orthodox, this is not what we recognise as academic writing necessarily, but we're going to publish it anyway. And I thought that was, I don't think I realised at the time how much that meant to me or, or you know in terms of um what the journal stood for or stands for but i think now looking back and, and realizing how what a difficult journey publishing is for so many of us i think that was a real moment of um you know validation for me but also i think standing up as learning developers and being able to say we don't have to follow your rules to write stuff that's really important and 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 you know has an impact Mm. I suppose it, this is the value of being a little bit on the margins or in these borderlands between different fields and not being completely, you know, fully defined and with, with all these rules and regulations and structures and um, conventions, etc., that we have to abide by. So there is room for all sorts of writing. Um, I was actually... Um, having a similar conversation yesterday with someone who was a scientific writer and who was um, reading my writing and commenting that it was very artsy. <laughs> <laughs> because what they look for is, you know, data, results, uh, methods, you know, a certain structure to a paper. And I'm just kind of musing <laughs> on this, this and that and and not really giving straightforward answers or, or, or doing it in a different way to the one that is expected. So you, you can't take any shortcuts. You just have to work through the entire paper in order to get it rather than, you know, read selectively. Uh, because then it just doesn't come together and and rereading your, your paper kind of made me feel better about that <laughs> maybe writing in an artsy way or in a way that <laughs> whatever that might be <laughs> yeah maybe not so bad <laughs> that it, it may be invigorating and maybe you know uh, I don't know uh, more vital um, vital as in having vitality mm. <laughs> than uh, 
importance. So I think a lot of a lot of people who who write in this way and don't feel that they necessarily fit a particular genre or a particular expectation can find a lot of comfort in in reading something like what you've produced. Although obviously there are challenges in the publishing world, <laughs> not everyone is prepared to. Um, no, but then you know it's like it's it's you have to be um you know you have to choose carefully i've had two pieces published uh, during the last couple of years um in publications that i'm proud to be part of um they you know that the spaces are there you've just got to find them yeah um but i did think it was interesting what you said about you know sort of these marginal spaces um and I think, you know, one one thing I was thinking about as I read that piece was that I had just arrived back in the UK after being abroad for 14 years. I hadn't been in higher education for 16 years. And part of what was going on in that piece was the shock mm -hmm. of how much things had changed and how there was suddenly now, you know, the study skills handbook and how to write an essay as if as if there was a formula that you had to follow and that if you didn't, you know, that your mark would and was and is, you know, impacted. And of course, you know, when I was uh, studying, nobody, you know, I know there's lots to talk about here around who went to university and, and you know, that, that sort of expectation that you already knew how to write and all sorts of things, but there wasn't a prescription of, of how, you demonstrated your knowledge you you just kind of did um, and so that that being out of the country for those that number of years and coming back into higher education and kind of seeing that there was almost this painting by numbers approach to academic writing and that it was being defined and you know you follow this structure and it's correct and this number of words in your introduction and this number of words in your yeah, and I, it really blew my mind. Um, and, and the other side of what that was the impact it seemed to be having on people like Jill, who you know, would come into back into education at great personal cost to herself because she was passionate and driven and had so much she wanted to say, and then was suddenly in this like terrible straitjacket of it you it doesn't it has no value unless you say it in these prescribed ways that just felt like the world had gone mad to me and i think that was partly what was coming out mm. in that piece that i just found it really hard to deal with and i think that the sort of response was to go completely off off the scale in terms of not following you know the structures mm. of conventions um, at all well, it absolutely comes across it like your paper is a rebellion. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> it is a transgression in itself, isn't it? Mm. You talk about transgressive data, but uh, as I went through it, I thought, well, actually, no, there's a transgressive voice, transgressive content, form and purpose. The whole thing is saying, no, I'm not having this. Uh, this is what we're doing. <laughs> and I think you know, one of the questions we can kind of... You, you sort of said you might touch on was you know what what was your purpose maybe or, or mm. what, what and I, I after reading your paper I thought yes it was kind of it was a bit of a 
a refusal, a bit of rebelliousness perhaps, but not, I, I don't think it, I set out to be rebellious. I just, I, I was just furious really with the, the, the kind of these constraints that everyone seemed to have suddenly accepted, you know, were, had always been there when clearly they hadn't. Also, I think with that piece, but perhaps even more so now with the PhD, feels like it's it's a gift I want to give it's it's about giving something or putting something out there that that gives people as you were saying you know that confidence or that reassurance that writing doesn't always have to follow these these mm. you know particular um, ways of being to have value and I think if I was going to mention somebody else who's had a huge impact particularly on my later work is Erin Manning, um, who really interrogates and blows apart this, this notion of value and mm. how we judge value uh, and how that is sort of built into very particular kind of Western-centric, she's very, you know, she'll, she'll, colonial Western-centric white ways of knowing that are also informing the way we uh, value um, all sorts of things including uh, academic work and I, I'm very again very interested in you know that kind of unpacking or troubling that what we assign value to yeah. because that's very powerful in terms of who it includes and excludes mm -hmm. uh, particularly in, in education. Absolutely so do you feel that these are the kinds of um principles or the kind of ethos you were trying to embody in the writing cafe itself as a concept as a as a practice yeah a space yeah absolutely i think you know that that was kind of the physical manifestation of my kind of um desire to 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 bring writing back where it belongs which is you know in communal spaces I was very taken by you know the fact that you're writing collaboratively so this collaborative community spaces where writing is is shared and enjoyed um, and when we originally opened the writing cafe um, it didn't focus just on academic writing there were lots of creative opportunities for uh, people uh, from the local community we had open mic nights we had students running creative writing workshops we had uh, you know it was very organic it was very much about trying to explode some of those myths about how ac academic writing's done but also what writing is um, even within the university you know um, and it was a very exciting time because it it did take on a lot of those kind of underlying principles in a very physical way I think you know if you remember the furniture um, you know that we sourced from secondhand shops and you know all the odd artifacts that Christie dug out of the basements of the university it was very much about uh, I think almost physically bringing to light uh, you know the and, and opening up what felt like a very closed and lonely kind of approach to writing that most people were experiencing. And still, you know, it still inspires a lot of people because writing cafes are being opened across different universities, both in the UK and abroad. Um, 
from what I know. So the concept itself is definitely an appealing one. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how it's actually enacted in different places. And I think our writing cafe has changed as well and morphed into something else. Uh, but such is, you know, the nature of... <laughs> of... Neoliberalism, it eats you up in the end. You know, it devours you, it eats you up. Um, but, you know, the, the, this is the trick, really, is that you, you just have to keep reinventing the new uh, you know you go back you you don't you you know there, there, there's not a sense of the work ever being done I think Donna Haraway has this lovely phrase she says the toilet is never clean so the work is never done um, we have to just keep going um, and you know the writing cafe is still a wonderful exciting space because students are in it um, mm. and they always bring energy and, 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 you know, all the wonderful things that, that it is to be a student and part of a, the yeah. university are there in the writing cafe every day. So I, I'm still very proud of the writing cafe, but um, yeah, I just think, you know, I, I do think there's a sense in which um, it's just continually pushing back against these kind of um, agendas and discourses and constraints is, it's the work of all, it's all of our work, but perhaps most um, importantly, it's the work that learning developers do really, really well because of what you said, Alicia, you know, sort of the spaces they occupy and, you know, their ear is always to the student, but also has the academic and it's a really special space mm. um, and I think enables us to step back from from some of the kind of conventions of academic study and 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 you know question them in really valid and very, really important ways. So um, yeah, I, th I you know again to to talk about learning development is to talk about the people who know more about what's happening at university than anybody else in many ways. And so they're such a vital group, you know, I know very diff disparate and, you know, different across, you know, the, uh, the HE context, but such, it's so important. And you used to be a learning developer, of course. <laughs> yeah, I was one of, you know, I'm, I'm sad I'm not one now, but in many ways I still am. The, a lot of the work I do, I think, is still very um, informed by those years when I was working with the learning development team um, because I think the conversations that we had around learning and, and the student experience I still never ha had that depth or insight um, in conversations in other parts of the university not even in my own team um, so I think you know I I think Plymouth is a special place, but I think it, when you talk to learning developers, the conversations um, are always framed in, in a way that is very different to the, to the conversations that are had in other circles and other fora mm -hmm. in the university. And that's why this field and, you know, and I loved your paper, you know, this, this need to write about this. And to, you know, and to express this is so important mm. because it, it's relevant to everybody who's in higher education. Mm. Thanks. Well, 
I'm glad that came across. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I think you've really nicely captured um, the values and principles of learning development and its role and its importance. Um, where do you think it's headed today? And as, as a field, where should it go? Where should we be nudging it? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm I'm always still saddened that it, you know, that it it, it still sits on the sidelines of of kind of um, what's going on in terms of learning, teaching, assessment. You know, I think there's so much that we have to offer to those conversations, but I think. If I'm honest, you know, I think I I think the danger for learning developers is to be kind of sucked into the mainstream of of of, of you know um, neoliberal higher education discourses, and I think we all know really we need a radical, urgent rethink of so many things, but higher education is one of them, um, and I would like to think, or I would you know in my ideal world it would be that learning development would be part of that radical reimagining of of higher education and what what its purpose is and how students experience it um whether that ever comes to pass i don't know but that you know i think there's a really important sense of maintaining uh, that self-belief in the work that that you do and 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 keeping pushing to have those voices heard and I think you know part of that is about publication and, and being um, heard in the academic community um, but I just think I do think it's really hard I think that, that you know that the way that the universities function now it's very difficult to bring alternative voices to the table that can be heard that can be really heard because nobody's everyone's you know everybody's got their hands over their ears while they race to you know survive or increase profits or increase student numbers or whatever it is they're trying to do mm. so yeah I don't know I just think keep doing the good work is all we can do you know is keep doing the good work because otherwise you know nobody else is going to do it and you know what what we know about the student experience and student learning is 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 like I said I think pretty unique mm. well there's a call to arms if ever I <laughs> <laughs> the question is though do we do that I mean how do we communicate this value best do we do it by adopting the academic discourse or do we do it by blasting it open as you did in this paper do we create our own discourse you know what I'm going to say we've <laughs> <laughs> got to blow it apart you know you've we've, we we can't be our own we are our own gatekeepers we, we you know we we need to I think have the confidence to write with that voice that authenticity that is our own from you know whether that's I don't mean necessarily as an individual my own it could be as a learning developer um, I think that is absolutely vital because it's only through doing that 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 we give that confidence that gift to others to to to, to write in the way that they want it to express their 
experiences and I, I, I can't I can't think that there's a more important thing to do than to to blow apart this sense of constraint and this is how it's done just because of this is how it's done as that that seems to pervade everything and yes yeah, so be brave and, and write you know I think write the work that you feel needs to be out there um, that that's all we can do which brings us back really nicely to writing <laughs> which we could talk about forever <laughs> so if writing can be a mission uh, if writing can be uh, a goal in itself or a uh, a weapon really uh, to to pry these things open and um the hiss <laughs> I'm just going to use this word now. <laughs> then what is your take on writing? What is your relationship with writing? What's writing to you? Do you see it also as part of your of your mission in this world or your professional mission or your personal mission? Uh, does it have that kind of agenda or is it just purely a, a personal way of expressing yourself? Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, so I think there's a couple of things here that, that, that I guess I'm still wrangling with a little bit because I think one of the things that troubles me is this sense that of being good at writing, whatever that means. And I think, again, that comes back to kind of particular value judgment. So, you know, I don't think it's enough just to be good at writing. So there definitely is a sort of political, social activist sort of agenda under, underneath my writing, but I can't lie, I love writing and it's a, a way that I enjoy expressing myself. And I would say that, again, to go back to Erin Manning, that you know, there's this sense in which we've got to move beyond words being the only way in which we can express you know ideas and knowledge so she talks a lot about research creation but that as a as a way of encompassing all sorts of creative practices so i have i have a personally very strong relationship with writing but i don't believe that writing is the only way and it can't be because you know we again erin manning does a lot of work around autistics and nonverbal uh you know people and and the way in which they creatively and effectively um you know can communicate beyond words so I, I think we've got to get away from words and writing being the only way um but for me it's a very it's particularly allowing myself to 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 really become immersed in a writing process um that has produced the PhD has been really very, um, I don't know, I'd like to say transformative, but I'm not sure it's the right word, but it has enabled me to work with ideas, respond to the world uh, I'm in, in, in what I feel is a very important I don't know what's the word productive uh, affecting um, 
mode of, of communication. And so it's interesting, you know, again, to go back to some of the things that we often talk about as learning developers around, you know, the challenges of writing, the difficulty, the painful process. Um, I think, again, for me, writing has just become a joy. Um, so I don't sit down to write with a heavy heart. I can hardly stop myself. Um, and and that, that that is also the PhD, you know, I, it got to a point once I got through the horrible institutional hurdles of the RDC one and the transfer document, once I managed to put them to one side, I felt unburdened and able to then explore this process of writing, which was very much about responding to the everyday, but entwined in that the reading I was doing the thinking I was doing um and and to produce this very not thesis like thesis um has just been revelationary and again would be my gift to other uh, doctoral students to say if it passes let's all cross our fingers here because I haven't submitted it yet if it passes then it stands as a testament to being able to follow the creative process that that is in in you mm. nobody's ever going to write a thesis like mine and they shouldn't but they may be you know it may give you a, a way to to think about what your writing would look like what your creative practice would look like what your research processes you know would be yeah. I must say, I already look forward to reading your, uh, your PhD, so <laughs> please do submit it. It's not if it passes, it's when it passes. <laughs> but uh, actually, if, if I may take a very quick um, detour and go back to, to your article, actually, because I, I had a feeling that some of that um, creativity and that sense of being invigorated by writing also stemmed from the methodology that you chose for that uh, paper. So I felt that, I don't know if you, you used it um, kind of consciously as a portrait methodology, but to me it was almost like portrait methodology where, you know, you work with someone and you, you paint them for us, you know, it, it's, it's almost like you cannot use, I, I can't kind of stop myself from using these artistic metaphors where you paint a picture of someone because I almost feel like I know Jill now mm -hmm. and and I know you from a different perspective uh, uh, as well and but then so I, I I'm fascinated by this methodology in itself but then you uh, mentioned friendship as a method of inquiry and that was new to me I'm not familiar with with that concept could you tell us a little bit more about that and what role it played in your thinking and your writing as well I think, yeah, there's, <laughs> watch out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a lot there. Um, um, yeah, so method has become very central, shall we say, to um, the way in which I have conceptualized my thesis. When I mentioned the RDC1 and the RDC2, which is what we call here at Plymouth, our kind of project proposal and our transfer documents, um, where I really struggled was having to um, articulate my methodology. I didn't have one. 
um, and I felt very resistant to, you know, identifying a methodological approach um, because I had already begun to feel very suspicious of the way we conceptualize data, collecting data, the sort of this, this sense of extraction, you know, the power dynamics that we're all aware of around, you know, sort of um, any kind of data collection that involves other people. So I'd, I'd already had huge misgivings around that whole kind of as, as ethical as, 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 you know, you would want to be. I still had a problem with the fundamental sense of you know, collecting data, analyzing data, presenting findings. I just couldn't really go there. Um, and that was already happening a little bit back then um, that although I was in this, um, these conversations with Jill, I hadn't um, submitted an ethical protocol. I hadn't sat down and interviewed her. Uh, she wasn't in my mind, my research participant because I I wasn't actually doing research at that point I was just in the middle of what I was in the middle of so <laughs> the Tillman Healy friendship as a method of inquiry actually came quite late to me um, but saved me in terms of some of the uh, what I did later for my master's dissertation I could then frame around kind of um, Ron Pelias's methodology of the heart and friendship as a method of inquiry and you know and I was then able to feel more comfortable with writing about Jill and and, and uh, the, the, the PhD student I wrote with and about in my master's dissertation because I could I needed something I needed <laughs> some way of kind of explaining what I was doing that 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 would make some kind of sense uh, to, to a reader, but I must say I didn't sort of read Tillman he Healy and sort of think, oh, that's going to be my method. I kind of, mm -hmm. and I must say, if I'm absolutely honest, a similar thing has happened with the PhD. I let myself go and write this thing. And then I've kind of had to kind of look around for ways in which I can, um, you know, justify its existence. I, I've never been able to, um, work the other way around um, but again if you read Saint-Pierre, Erin Manning, um, there's a lot of work that that people have done now that's against method mm -hmm. and uh, particularly this idea of uh, not knowing in advance being very uh, um, important because if you know in, in fact if you know what you're going to do in advance if you've identified your methodology and what data you're going to collect and from who there's almost a sense in which you're just writing what's already known to, to a certain extent so how are you breaking through um, just replicating you know kind of the already known if you have a gantt chart and a, a kind of a, so yeah again it's a little bit about kind of trying to explode um, mm those linear approaches to doctoral study that then work to really constrain people in terms of what they can do and how, because you've already mapped it all out, you know, sort of in year one of your doctorate. It doesn't give you much room to explore 
or to you know to develop your thinking if you've already said this is what I'm going to do Mm. which is also liberating I like that Uh, I'm also intrigued that you said that um writing your PhD has been such a joy are you you sure you've done a PhD (laughs) (laughs) again this is this is a point that I've got to and I'm in the last three months of my PhD and I'm happier now than ever about what I've done and what I'm doing and I and nobody ever says that because I'm supposed to be now you know crying in the corner I know I am but Mm. this is this is the other side of it that I think if you open yourself up to a a writing process and you're brave enough to take the risk to do something that really is meaningful for you then there is true joy in that Mm. whereas if you're following a, a, a very linear kind of straight jacketed approach most people by the end and you'll hear this and Alicia might have even said this herself most people say by the end I hated my PhD by the end I hated my PhD what a sad thing I think that's just I think that's that's just heartbreaking Mm -hmm. that you put all that time and effort into something that you then hate because I think you've been funneled into a place that perhaps you never wanted to go Mm -hmm trying to pass trying to justify yourself trying to enact the value of the institution so again my fingers crossed if I get through then you know I'm vindicated that 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 you can do the piece of work that you want to do and still meet the requirements Mm. of of, of a, a PhD I think a lot of people who write PhDs are secret masochists for whom, you know, they have discovered already that burning yourself with a cigarette is a little bit too painful, but you can do a PhD instead. (laughs) (laughs) But I love mine, but it was painful. I mean, it's supposed to be, right? Because these are the kind of growing pains and because you're creating something new out of nothing. Uh, Well, not nothing, but um, in your head, there was nothing before. And now all of a sudden there's this this new thing in the world that you have created you know that is you know you you sound like it sounds like childbirth and of course that is painful but (laughs) such joy such joy you know it's um it's I just think it's um it's very interesting that I am you know now when people because people know I'm submitting at the end of May and they say oh how's the PhD you know that voice how's the PhD and I go it's great you know really enjoying this last phase and they kind of look at me like she's completely lost her mind you know she's obviously completely lost her mind but um you're in the hallucination stage (laughs) yeah maybe yeah I could well be you know come back in a few months and uh you know we'll see but I must say that the bits I enjoyed least were definitely the early stages when I was being constantly asked to articulate what it was I was going to do Mm. and that was very problematic and I think again says a lot about the way we approach academic writing create a plan decide what it is you're going to say you know uh, uh, and then write it is very there's not much joy in that Mm. Your writing in the article is clearly a process of discovery for you. And um, what I really loved about it was the way you've got these dual narratives coming through. And it's almost like you and Jill are writing each other into existence through through your interactions and through the way that you think about each other's writing um, away from each other as well. 
Um, and yeah, maybe more writing, maybe collaborative writing is the way to go. Maybe this is the way to do it. Yeah, I think it, it was interesting, again, because it sort of links to what Alicia was asking about sort of the method and friendship mm. as a method of inquiry. And one of the, yeah, I can't, I won't be able to reference who it was, that, but they said, you know, this reciprocity is really mm. important in writing. So one of the ways in which I kind of satisfied my own ethical um, questions was was to share that writing with Jill, you know, and to say, like, this is what I've written about you. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't want to write this stuff and then publish it or, or whatever without you knowing what I've written. Um, but what you're picking up, and I, again, I really sense that rereading it today was that sense in which that started this kind of lovely dialogue mm. between us where she read what I wrote and then I read what she wrote and then the emails and then the going back to the recordings and the richness in there I think you're right you could write a whole book on it because there was so much in those kind of dialogues you know that weren't always held face to face that um yeah I really enjoyed as well but again it was kind of a little bit like I you know I need to I need to demonstrate that I am a ethical person but actually it, it, you know, it really, it was very rich and very rewarding, I think, for both of us. And I, I particularly loved reading the bit, uh, you know, where she comes back a, a year later and goes, oh, I sounded really clever. Because <laughs> she was really, you know, she was in another place there where she could appreciate, you know, um, what she was articulating and how much she'd learned. And that I thought that was a really nice aspect to it as well, that she got to revisit Jill. Um, in a positive way mm -hmm. really yeah this, so this um radical reciprocity was tillman healy okay uh, thank you <laughs> no i just uh, had it open because <laughs> i w wanted to ask you about it as well but actually my question is going to be a little bit more controversial and i just wonder how you how you thought about it because due to that kind of interweaving, it's almost like double dutch, right? You're both kind of jumping through these ropes and creating something together. How did you feel about authorship of this article? Obviously you wrote it, um, but to what extent did you feel that, because you were talking about how your thinking, how your writing changed because of Jill, um, what was really uh, her role in it who was she because she wasn't your participant she wasn't your you know um uh, but she wasn't co-author as well um so the closest word i can see is is a friend in that kind of uh, uh, uh methodology that we we mentioned before but but i wonder how you you think about it um i think there's a lot in what you're saying that i think troubled me a little bit at the time because you know friend 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 yes well there was still a, a, a you know there was still a power relationship definitely um going on there I think I allude to it a little bit in the article you know I was still the study skills coordinator or whatever my title was back then you know and I was still the person who sort of in many ways wielded some kind of power and I think actually that question, Alicia, makes me feel really uncomfortable because I do think to a certain extent she was a co-author and perhaps that's something I should have addressed more at the time. Um, something similar happened, I think, in my master's uh, where I worked very closely with a PhD student. And we again, we had 
um, many, many conversations over a number of years. And she wrote some pieces in her own language that were then included in. So there was a similar kind of um, dynamic. Um, but I know I, I, um, I did get kind of some quite harsh criticism from one of the uh, examiners who said that I had a very naive approach to ethics. Um, and I think that could be a valid criticism. And in my PhD, I've chosen not to work with anybody but myself because I do find uh, it problematic somehow mm. that there's always a sense in which that relationship is never really a friendship or equal or you know somebody is going to benefit from from it in a way you know it's inherent in all research isn't it but you know even, even in, in, in what I thought I was trying to do back then I can if I think about it now I'd say yes you know that there, there's a sense in which I I remain the author the writer the the beneficiary of those conversations in a way that you know we'd have to ask Jill perhaps mm. was not know, I, yeah, I, I, obviously, I didn't ask this question to make you uncomfortable, but I no, think... no, I think it's really good to talk about these things because yeah. it's real. You know, I think perhaps your and Karina's collaborative writing relationship, it, it you know, would would be more would have less of those problems inherent in it because you 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 know what you're entering into, mm -hmm. um, and you're you know you're willingly and happily in doing so. But I think in terms of a student the relationship I had with those two women who were also students probably yeah. there's there's question marks there so collaborative writing needs to be fully collaborative not um you know one person kind of benefiting from from mm. another I think so yeah I think there's a lot to be Although I think that these boundaries are often blurred because, you know, we often ask people to read our writing, they contribute ideas, they help us shape it. And yet we might write a little acknowledgement somewhere, but actually they do not become co-authors co of that because there is some line that we draw, but that line is not very clear how we draw it, why we draw it. And I think that it's uh, it's good to have that discomfort a little bit. And uh, but because it's a way of acknowledging that our ideas are never our own fully, that they're always, you know, whatever we write is a product of our thinking, that is a product of others, other people's thinking and other people's writing. And in the end, it's almost like, you know, these ideas are floating uh, out there in the class and we just kind of keep pulling from these clouds and, and and shaping it into something that we call our own uh, but, but these yeah. yeah and I think you know that's again something that I've tried to kind of address in the PhD is this idea of writing with mm. so you're never you're never producing something that is yours really it's mm. you know whether whether that writing with is with other humans or you know to broaden out in sort of Bennett's terms the sort of non-human you know we're always writing with um, so I think that's a really important thing and I think goes back to that kind of earlier conversation around decentralizing this kind of individual human subject and recognizing that it's not my writing actually <laughs> it's the writing that has come through 
the being in the world, but also the, the reading with, thinking with, uh, that I've done mm -hmm. with so many, you know, fabulous writers and, and, and uh, that of course they get, who says it, they get, they get in your bones and, 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 and you can't, you, you can't separate my stuff from their stuff because it all is coming together in this writing in, in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's great, you know, but again, it's about kind of reframing what it means to write away from this, you know, we, we, neoliberalism is all about the individual. Um, and, and that is, you know, that's a problem. Um, and it, you know, is underpinned by a very particular Western notion of human and what it is to be human that isn't shared with everybody around the world, you know, where thinking about writing with would be absolutely, well, yeah, of course, you know, whereas we're very locked into these very kind of um, individual traditions of, of the human subject that, that I think are really problematic. So now you must share with us these writers, those who influence your thinking about writing itself and how you write, your process, the kind of nitty gritty of writing rather than the larger ideas. Who are your greatest influences? I think at the moment, you know, I have mentioned her already a few times, but Erin Manning has been hugely influential um, on, on my current work. But again, I came to her quite late in the process. So she is another kind of person who's really helping me to kind of articulate what I was already doing. <laughs> so so um, she's been very influential. I think Helena Sisu, mm -hmm. I, I love writers who write about writing. So Helena Sisu writes a lot about writing and what it means to be a writer. Uh, Ursula Le Guin has just had me kind of spellbound in terms of not only how she writes and how she, you know, she's another one who explodes things on the page with such humor and such clarity that you think, of course, you know, I mean, her, 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 her essay on the menopause is just, you know, anyway, so yeah, I, I'm really into people who, who write about writing. Um, and uh, somebody else who's crept a lot into my work is Jeanette Winterson. Um, I had, uh, there's a piece I've written about her, her book, Sexing the Cherry, but she writes, the later edition has a really interesting foreword of, uh, where she talks a lot about writing and, and what it, you know, how it is for her and how for her, the words are just the string and it's the spaces that, that really are, are where everything's happening. And I think, again, I kind of like that idea of kind of, um, taking the words and, and putting it where it, you know, it's sort of this hallowed being, the word, you know, and, and kind of recognizing that it's it's often not the not just the words that are important, it's perhaps what's not said or the spaces or the things in between. Um, so yeah, I think that I think they would be my the people who've had the biggest impact on me and my writing at the moment um but of course laurel richardson and elizabeth sampierre you know started this whole thing off by i mean laurel richardson she you know what are we talking 1987 you know and she was writing the most incredible work about being 
uh, you know, an academic and, and not wanting or feeling that she wanted to, to write in the ways that she was being told she had to. And that, I think that piece on Louisa May, where she turned the transcription into a poem, I just thought, you know, when I first read it, I just thought, you know, of course, there was so, instead of trying to replicate speech in writing, what a weird thing to do, she, she'd captured the spirit of, mm -hmm. of, 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 of the woman's words and experiences um, in a way that was so much more affecting than a, a, a transcription in an appendix. So, you know, there are people that you come across at different times in your life that mm -hmm. change things for you. And then for me, there's people who come into my life at later stages and, and really help me to, to, to understand what it is that, that's going on in my writing and, and articulate that in a way that I hope will give, um, you know, it some sense of value, difficult word, but within, you know, the, the constraints of, of, of higher education as well. And what about those people for whom writing is, shall we say, not a joy? <laughs> Do you have any advice for them other than just shut up and get on with it? <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's seeking out spaces mm. like the Writing Cafe. Um, you know, that's what it was always supposed to be, a space where people who didn't like writing or found it difficult might be able to find a little bit of joy in that. I think collaborating, sharing, talking about writing, um, it's, it's just so important. And again, that comes back to that's what learning developers do. You open up a conversation about writing instead of saying you just need to write. It's like, well, what, what are we, you know, what is this thing that's writing and why is it so painful? And I think more conversations about what is the source of the pain hmm. Um, because for a lot of students, it's not actually writing. I don't think it's it's what it's it's the expectations around that piece of writing, mm. plus a whole host of other things. Never mind deadlines and time constraints and all the other things we know about. Um, so yeah, really kind of having those honest conversations around what the source of pain is, and, and then what what. What can be done to, to, to alleviate that pain? So freeing people up to write um, in, in, in ways or in spaces that, that are more authentic to them. Um, and, 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 you know, back to the beginning, really, you know, allowing space in higher education for people to express their knowledge in different ways. You know, we can't, we're all talking about the, bloody whatever it is the chat gpt you know which is you know it, it's absolutely the product of uh you know the painting by numbers approach to academic writing because you couldn't possibly program something to produce academic writing as well as it does if there wasn't a consensus on what academic mm -hmm. writing is and looks like so you know if creating spaces for other ways of expressing knowledge whether it's through writing or other forms you know is it's just it's so important for, for for higher education for students but also as we move into you know 
sophisticated AI, you know, writing is, is now increased, or that kind of writing is now increasingly going to be under question, isn't it? Because mm. it's replicable and producible by... Yeah, um, absolutely. Wow. It's also rich. I, I feel like our conversation is a little bit like your article. It only opens up. <laughs> good, isn't it? Opening Absolutely. up is so much better than closing down, you know. Yeah. There aren't any answers. There's only continually opening up these discussions, which is, you know, it's fantastic that you're doing these podcasts, opening up these conversations, talking about these issues. We, we won't find the answers, but we can, you know, through this process of kind of, wrangling with them these issues i think you know that in itself is such valuable work mm. ah. thank you very much well before we close is there anything that we haven't asked you but you were hoping to talk about <laughs> <laughs> no but i want to finish uh -huh. with that lovely quote now this is what blew out of your piece to me is the tony morrison quote uh. the function of freedom is to free someone else. And if that's not what learning developers do, then I don't know what you do. <laughs> Brilliant. That's a great thought to finish on. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Helen, for being here with us and sharing this space and the ideas and opening up these ideas. So we can continue maybe at another time because these conversations have to keep rolling mm. yeah very happy to I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you both it's been really very very rich thank you and thank uh, you. yeah maybe maybe i'll come back when i've finally got my uh doctorate oh please do see if it actually painted you know, if i pulled it off or not <laughs> <laughs> well, well we'll remember that promise <laughs> <laughs>